0: Well, tonight we begin a 10-week series on the book of Exodus, and I'm very grateful to my partner, Anna Seipel, uh, who is going to work with me in this series. Anna and her husband, Elijah, have been coming to All Souls since the fall. They met in seminary at Gordon-Conwell, studying biblical languages, which is really pretty romantic when you think about it. And earned her master's in biblical studies and a master's in counseling there and has taught Old Testament in a variety of uh, academic settings. And uh, we've had a lot of fun putting this series together and she's going to preach two of them. Well, Exodus is a big and important book and you can't understand the rest of the Bible without understanding Exodus. And so, Tonight, I want to introduce the book to you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about its place in the Bible, as well as in the history of the church. And in the time that remains, we'll look at the first two chapters. The title, Exodus, means going out, and that is what the book is about. Israel going out from Egypt, out from slavery. Exodus tells the story of the liberation of the Hebrew people from enslavement to the Egyptians. That's what the book's about. In the opening chapter, every story starts with a setting. The opening chapter of Exodus describes the painful and unfair suffering Israel experiences in Egypt. And the book begins, and by the way, uh, all the scriptures that we're going to follow are Laid out for you in the newsletter, as well as a couple of resources that Anna put together for you, if you'd like to follow along or do this in your small groups. The book begins, and it will help if you can read it beforehand, because we're not going to—we're going through forty chapters in ten weeks, so we're not going to cover every verse here. The book starts out. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now. That is a summary of the last part of the book of Genesis. That Jacob, whose name means Israel, and his sons go down to Egypt. And Exodus picks up the story some 300 years later. And verse 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now one of the things about all good literature, and particularly the Bible, is that it's intertextual. And by that I mean it refers to other scriptures that have gone before it. And so all through the book of Exodus, you're supposed to be thinking of the book of Genesis. And when, when verse 7 says they were fruitful and multiplying, you're supposed to think of Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to, you'll be fruitful and you'll go into a land and you'll bring blessing to all the world. And so if you're uh, paying attention, you would notice at this point, and I'm sure the early Hebrew uh, readers would have noticed this, hey, some of God's blessing is happening here, but they're still in slavery. So there's kind of a dramatic tension introduced even in the first verses. The growth of Israel threatens Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Verse 8, we have a, a good chunk of scripture that talks about this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The Hebrew could be translated crushing burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But this was not enough. Uh, Even though Egypt was the greatest empire uh, of the time, they had all the resources, uh, they, they had the slave of Israel under their thumb. Pharaoh says it's not enough. So he decides, you know, actually, we need to kill him off. We need to have a state-sponsored uh, genocide. And so uh, we read this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. We'll see in a minute that this genocidal plan did not work. And so in verse 22, he tries again. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is about as bad as as it could get. These people are uh, under harsh slavery. Uh, The leader is trying to kill them through state-sponsored violence. When one method doesn't work, he tries another. And the book of Exodus is about how God liberates Israel from this bondage, from this oppression. God is a liberator. This book reveals God's character as one who liberates, one who rescues, one who saves. And you see this Exodus theme of liberation uh, all through the rest of the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you don't understand Exodus, you really can't understand what's going on in the rest of the Bible. The prophets, especially Ezekiel and Isaiah, pick up this theme and they'll talk about a new Exodus when God will gather the people of God and deliver them back to the land. The Psalms often refer to the exodus. And the idea is that if God could do that, then he could do it now. So Psalm 31, verse five, here's a prayer. Free me from the net they've set for me, for you are my refuge. In other words, do it again. Do exodus again. Deliver us from oppression again. Now, Jesus, who is stepping onto the stage in the middle of the act and very much living out the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus, who sees himself as the new Moses, draws upon the Exodus liberation story in his first sermon. And he cites from Isaiah 61, which itself is referring back to Exodus, and he says these words apply to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. He's weaving in there another main Old Testament theme, the Jubilee, from Leviticus 25. And if you want to understand the Old Testament, you need to understand Exodus and Jubilee. And if you want to understand Jesus' teaching, you need to understand Exodus and Jubilee. And he'll go back to it again and again and again, and he will say, I am your Exodus, and I am your Jubilee. Jesus then will go on and spend his ministry liberating people from all sorts of bondage, from Physical illness, religion, enslaving mindsets, cultural practices, and ultimately the bondage of sin. And so this is why people who are in need of liberation turn to the book of Exodus for inspiration. And of course, one classic example is the religion of American slaves. Slaves prayed for the future day of deliverance to come, and they kept hope alive by incorporating as part of their mythic past the Old Testament exodus of Israel out of slavery. The Christian slaves applied the exodus story, whose end they knew, to their own experience of slavery, which had not ended. In identifying with the exodus story, they created meaning and purpose out of the chaotic and senseless experience of slavery. And of course, the story of God leading his people out of bondage inspired the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King frequently uh, drew upon Exodus in his preaching. Here's one example. Looking back, we see the forces of segregation dying on the seashore. Evil in the form of injustice and exploitation shall not survive forever. A Red Sea passage in history ultimately brings the forces of goodness to victory. And the closing of the same waters marks the doom and destruction of the forces of evil. The civil rights preachers lived in Exodus. So Exodus is a book about God liberating people from bondage. And one thing that we might ask as we go through this story is, who among us needs liberation? And how do we join in this work? We've started a little, uh, we call it the, the front porch And uh, we have a wonderful team that's working on that. you read it in the newsletter. They're going to share a monthly announcement. We're looking to see if we can use some social media to do the same. Just to kind of introduce you to different aspects of our neighborhood and our community. And one of the things that, that we'd ask you to be praying about as you're part of this church is, who among us needs liberation? Because that's where you'll find God at work. Now, the New Testament encourages us to think about spiritual liberation as well. And one of the things that you you see the New Testament writers do something very interesting with this historical event, they allegorize it and they speak of it spiritually. Uh, For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Sacrificed. And the idea is this that in Exodus, God delivered the Israelites from slavery to Egypt. And now in Christ, God delivers his people from slavery to sin. So, another question that you could ask during this series the first one was, Who among us needs liberation? A second question would be, Where do I need liberation? Where am I in bondage? Where am I not free? Well, since we're in the beginning chapters of Exodus tonight, let's spend the last few uh, moments asking, how does liberation begin? From our story in Exodus 1 and 2. Well, first, liberation begins when good people do what is right. We know the names of the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. We don't know the name of the pharaoh. And that's on purpose because the hero of the story are these women. The empire tells them to kill, and they refuse, knowing they could be killed themselves. They fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And God blesses them. And we see something similar. Soon after Moses' mother gives birth, she hides Moses in a basket, puts him in the Nile. The daughter of Pharaoh comes down to take a bath, sees the basket. And then we read, when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, we know that maybe as a sing-songy children's story that we put on a flannel graph, or maybe we saw in a Disney movie or something. Remember what's happening here. The daughter of the king of the empire is saying, I will break my father's law because it's not right. Let's not romanticize that. She could easily have lost her life. And so the liberation of Israel begins with three women who do the right thing at great risk to themselves. Without these three women, there would have been no Moses. I think it might be helpful just to think for a minute about some of the symbolism here. Pharaoh represents the culture of death. He is commanding death. The two Hebrew women are what? They are midwives. They bring life. And whenever you resist the empire of death and the demands of the culture to bring death, and instead you are a midwife and you bring forth life, you are participating in God's liberation. Well, secondly, liberation begins when God raises up a a leader. In chapter 2, God raises Moses up to lead Israel out of bondage to Egypt. His path to leadership is a bumpy one. He's a compassionate man, but not that wise when we first meet him. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and we read, He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. He thinks nobody sees it. Somebody caught it on their phone. (laughs) The next day he goes out. Two Hebrews are fighting. He asks them to stop. They say, you're not the boss of us. We saw you kill that guy. You're just a hothead. Pharaoh hears about it. Moses is running for his life. Not a great way to start out your leadership career. And by the way, maybe some of you feel disqualified from leadership because you had a couple of missteps. You're in good company. Well, he goes all the way to Midian, which is somewhere in Saudi Arabia. He marries, he has a son. And then there's this little hint. He names the boy Gershom, for he said... I've been a stranger in a foreign land. Now the text tells us he's somewhere now, I mean not the text, but tradition says he's somewhere in the 60s and the 70s now and he's looking at his life and he's thinking, I missed the boat. I, I'm a stranger out here in the back country. And I thought I was going to do something great with my life. Well, then God calls him to be a leader. But I, I think there's some lessons here. That a lot of times the people God calls to lead us are flawed and wounded and have made mistakes and have a rap sheet. And are on the backside of the desert. One other note though. As we think about leadership. Even our own church's journey with leadership. You see an interesting pivot. When you go from the old covenant to the new covenant. In terms of how God leads his people. In the old covenant. It's very much the great leader. Moses, David, Solomon. They're anointed with the spirit. And they lead. Jesus, of course, is the new Moses, and he is the ultimate leader. But after Pentecost, if you remember, the Holy Spirit falls on everyone, and in in the sermon, peter quotes uh, uh, <laughs> he he quotes somebody and uh, <laughs> and he quotes that joel two eighteen that's right, thank you it's coming it's coming, it's coming. He quotes Joel in this this beautiful passage where Joel says, You know, one day the Spirit's not just gonna rest on the main guy, it's gonna be in all of you young people, old people, men, women, slaves, free, black, white, it's gonna be everywhere. And then you see Paul do this astounding thing when he starts his churches. He doesn't put a Moses over them. He forms a team. He creates a collaborative leadership structure where they work together and share their gifts. And of course, some people had leadership gifts, and I'm sure emerged and all of that. And you know, somebody has to tell you when to pray at the beginning of the meeting. But you see this pivot to at the risk of well this is just what i'm thinking you know what one nice thing about knowing i'm going is that i can say what i want you can't fire me <laughs> so i could be wrong here here's what i see you know you know how in um in god male and female he created them and so in god there's masculine and feminine energies and so if we're creating the image of god there's masculine and feminine energies I think what you see in the Old Testament is a lot of masculine energy. And I think what happens in the the New Covenant is the feminine energy from God starts to find a place and come into the church. And that's why you see this collaborative, relational, networked form of leading. I also have another theory, and I'm not sure I'm right. It's true that by the end of the first century, the church has adopted the structure of the Roman Empire. Have you, have you ever wondered where all these names come from? They all come from Rome in the first century. <laughs> the diocese, bishops, and all that. And I think, this is my personal thought, I think what happened is the church lost the way by 80 AD. And, and, and just said, look, this is how the world does it. This is how we're going to do it. the last observation how does liberation begin it begins when good people do what's right it begins when God raises up a leader but leadership looks differently in the new covenant liberation begins when God's people pray and my favorite two verses of the whole chapter 23 and 24 during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. (laughs) So the people cry out, they pray, they make their needs known. God hears, He remembers, He sees, He knows, and liberation begins. Let's pray. God, you you're a liberator. exodus reveals how you save you save souls but you save us from social sins and political sins and economic sins and all of that your redemption is multifaceted Lord I pray that this community would join whatever liberating work you're doing in our neighborhood and then i i i pray too lord that you would free us from anything that's holding us in bondage personally and spiritually and if somebody's here tonight maybe they they are still kind of in a place where they just They just need to trust you and love you and be filled with your life, rise with you from the dead. Maybe that's where they need to start tonight. Or maybe somebody's in bondage to a belief or a broken relationship or a lack of forgiveness. Oh, liberator, set us free. Make us a church of freedom. May this be a place where we come to find freedom. And then finally, Lord, I just pray that whatever new thing you're doing in terms of our church and how we lead and how we follow and how we worship and how we listen and how we pray, That it would be Exodus shaped. We ask all this in your name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Lift up your hearts. Give us thanks to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord.